Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Now it's on. Here we go. So, how are y'all doing today? Yeah, we're here, aren't we? Darn right, we're here. This, this, this summer isn't keeping us away from Bible study. That's good. There are places hotter than this. <laughs> just let your imagination go, Andy. Just think about, yeah, just think about some possible destination where, I don't know. Anyway, okay, so it's glad to be here. We are on Facebook Live. Microphone's on. I think it's all working. Podcast being recorded. I think we're good. Knock on something. Boom. Why do I still have remnants of being superstitious in me? I don't know, really, but there we go. Truth is, I do. It's a funny thing about being human, I guess. So, let's see. No, no big announcements. We will be here every Tuesday until August, um, when Patty and I will miss a couple of Tuesdays for a bit of vacation. And I'll make sure that y'all know about that in plenty of time. And when we get there, we will still be in 1 Corinthians. So just so you know, we've got a ways to go. It's a, it's a pretty long, it's a long letter. And a genuine piece of correspondence from Paul to the house churches in Corinth. So anyway, so Patty, we looking good? We're looking good. Okay. Anything before we get started? Okay, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. It's a hot day, but it's cool in here. We're grateful for air conditioning. We live in Texas. Of course, we're grateful for air conditioning. And we're grateful that you, that your spirit has called us here to be part of this fellowship. And we do enjoy seeing each other and, um, every, every Tuesday when we come together here. And we are taking some time out of our week to come here and to study your word. Um, and we ask your blessings on this time, and we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to you and to your word. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, friends, so we are back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And last week we went through the first part of chapter 7, which is, was all about advice to the married, the unmarried, those who were engaged and those who the getting divorced, marrying unbelievers, all this stuff. It all began in chapter 7 with Paul needing to address the idea in the Corinthian churches that a very spiritual way for them to be Christians would be to forego sex, basically, to set that apart, to lead a very ascetic lifestyle. And, and Paul says, no, that is, that is not how we were created. And it's not, it's not what God is asking of anyone. It, it isn't, uh, it might be a spiritual practice that might work for some for a while. But you remember Paul said, then come back together. And because this, you see, even in chapter 7, this mutuality between husband and wife. That, that's what people miss when they come to Paul. Because Paul says some things that will really kind of shake people up a bit and they're wondering, well, what is that all about? And what, what they tend to miss is the mutuality of it. And so here was very clear, chapter 7, you know, husbands, you know, you're 
Your body belongs to your wife. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. It, it, it is the mutuality of it, I think, that you need to see first because that is what is most surprising. That is what is shocking. That is what is totally new to these people because they are very, very class conscious, status conscious. Um, it's a patriarchal world. Husbands are first, first, first class. Men are first, first, first class. Um, women and slaves are second class or worst, or worse. So um, when he talks about this mutuality, husband to wife and wife to husband, which you see even in his household code, even in his household codes, he will say, well, he'll have an advice for the wife, sure, you know, but then he'll go on and have four pieces to the husbands because it is the husband's world is turn, getting turned upside down, right? Um, the, the, the wife's, she is, <laughs> she's used to what? Giving herself to her husband in lots of ways, not the reverse. The husbands wouldn't, wouldn't feel that, that same way. So we did that in chapter seven, and now we're coming to the next section in chapter seven, which is about a change in um, changes in status. All right. I think we're at first chapter seven, verse seventeen. Correct? No, I think it's seventeen, yeah. Yeah, I think it's seventeen. Okay, so let's talk about this change of status for a minute. Because you have to enter into Paul's worldview to get what he's talking about. Okay? If you would, before we get going here, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Or so. <laughs> I'll actually start reading at Galatians 3, verse 26. Because you see, with Jesus' death and resurrection, and with the arrival of the kingdom of God, everything has changed. And this verse, 328 in particular, is a verse that you need to know. I don't know if you mark your Bibles or not, or you keep little lists of important verses. But this is one of the biggies in Paul. If you listen closely to preachers, they will tend to, to come back to this verse a lot. I know I come back to this verse a lot because it so neatly talks about the change that happens with the coming of the kingdom of God. Okay? That with the coming of the kingdom of God, old ideas about class, ethnicity, um, uh, status, wealth, all of that is out the window. Remember I talked last week about one phrase that we could see, we could knew it was, we used to be concerned with social class and social status and all this other stuff that the world is deeply concerned with and their world is concerned with it far beyond even our world. 
We used to be, but now we are. We used to be, but now we are. It is the but now we are that reflects this utter change that is brought about by Jesus' resurrection, the arrival of the Spirit, and the rebirth of each believer into the body of Christ. So, I used a few slides Sunday that I'm going to reuse today just so you can, you can step into Paul's head for a minute, okay? So this is a classic slide I've used a jillion times, ask Patty, a jillion times showing the Jewish expectations of the end that there was a division between the present age and the coming age and that division is represented by the arrival of the Messiah who ushers in the kingdom, ushers out the old age and ushers in the new age. And when Jesus is crucified and resurrected and the Spirit comes at Pentecost, what all of that means is that the kingdom of God has arrived. The obvious problem for the Christians is that they can still look around them and see that nobody but Jesus has been resurrected, so that's not how it's supposed to work. There's still a world filled with violence and illness and misery and the dang Romans and the rest of it. That's not how it's supposed to work. And so the Christians have to come, they come to find themselves living in a time when this line, as it were, dividing these two ages is getting wider and wider. Okay, and so it's getting wider. And then it's, you know, that's, that's a year in. Here is 20 years in. Now we're 23 years in. This is about when Paul writes the letter to the first Corinthians. And the line is, is, is wider now. And the Christians have the expectation that Jesus is about to return. Right? I think that. I'm, I'm certainly with those who believe that they believe they're in a time, it's now been 23 years, and Jesus is about to return. But as time goes on, he doesn't. And you and I are now how far past? We're just 10 years shy eight years shy of 2,000 years since Jesus' resurrection. So hence, the Christians, Paul, as time goes on, and the Christian community comes to see that we are living in between the times, this strange period when the present age is still with us, the coming age has arrived, and we are living between the times marked by Jesus' arrival and Jesus' return. Okay? So, this line is where Paul's head is. This is where the Christians are. We used to be, but now we are. Because for Paul, he is trying to help these people grasp that truly, in Jesus, the kingdom of God arrived. And that changes everything changes everything about how they see, see themselves. Um, we used to be, but now we are. Okay? So, now look at Galatians. And 
in a world this, this world is this world is so sensitive to status that if you were a slave in a high status household you might have status higher than a whole bunch of free people because you got it from your owner your the household that you are part of there were slaves who would save money and purchase their way out of slavery become freed people not freeborn freed people but they would stay with the household that they were in because they had been part of it for a very long time maybe their entire lives um, very social conscious very status conscious so here's what Paul writes into the Galatians and this is written maybe three years or so this is earlier than 1st Corinthians this is maybe the oldest letter from Paul that's in the New Testament. He says in verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through what? Amen. Through faith. You're children of God through faith. Another little bit Bible point. Children of God refers to the believers. In the Bible it's not a term to refer to all of humanity. We do have a way to speak of all of humanity. All of humanity is made in the image of God. But if when you encounter the term the children of God in Scripture and you see it as speaking of all humanity, you're going to misread it. Children of God means those in the New Testament, those who have come to faith in Christ and are part of the body of Christ. Okay? So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed themselves with Christ. You are in Christ. You have closed yourselves with Christ. You have been baptized. You have been in water, as Arthur was saying so wonderfully this weekend, in water and the Spirit. Okay? Once you were, but now you are. Once you were, but now you are. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his children, and heirs according to the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And each one of those divisions is staggering in the ancient world. Jews would not eat with, many Jews would not eat with Gentiles. They lived apart from the Gentiles. Most of them lived apart from the Gentile world. They didn't try to fit in. They wouldn't fit in. They were these weird people who thought there was only one God and they had all these weird practices. And they wouldn't eat shrimp and they wouldn't eat this and they wouldn't eat bacon and they wouldn't do this and they didn't work on Saturdays and they wore this strange clothing at least some of them did and they had all these other weird things that just made them weird 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 in the eyes of the world so they lived apart they lived apart set apart from the world so that they could live the life that they believed God had called them to neither slave nor free great lecture I listened to once about Roman society it was titled women and slaves colon less than human 
the difference between slave and free, except for those slaves who had acquired some status because of the household they were attached to, was dramatic. Slaves would work to purchase their freedom even if they were planning on staying in the same household. But they could never achieve the same status as those who were born free. But now that's all gone in the kingdom of God with the arrival of the coming age. Upon Jesus' arrival, his resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit, that division between slave and free is gone. They're all one. There's no status differential. There's no status differential between Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ anymore. There is no status differential between male and female. Yes, there's still men and women, but the whole business of their status and the way that they are seen by others in the body of Christ, that should all be changed. Now, I grew up in a world in the 1950s and 60s in the Deep South in which the telling thing here would, would be all about black and white. Right? Carolyn Getridge and I, um, who she's a member of the congregation, she's African American. She and I are from the same era. And Carolyn and I have talked about this. We've talked about this in front of the congregation that even though we are both from Louisiana, we grew up in two different worlds. She had her world, I had my world. Those worlds didn't mix. I would go down to the doctor's office, the doctor would have two waiting rooms. I'd go to the grocery store with my mother. There were three restrooms, men, women, and colored. There were two water fountains, right? The worlds were apart. There were two school systems. The worlds were apart. Carolyn would tell you that she had a pretty good world, actually. She, she, she was well-educated. She, she didn't feel herself terribly deprived growing up. She lived just a good life because of the parents she had, the family that she had, and the community that she had. But they were still worlds apart. So in the 1950s and 60s, if Paul was writing this, you, you could darn bet if he was writing this to the house churches in Atlanta or in Shreveport or in Dallas, he would say, there is neither white nor black. Sure he would, because of the status differential that existed um, between the races at that time. And it, some of it's still with us. Some of it's gone, I know, but some of it's still there. And the key thing when you, when, when you come to this next section of 1 Corinthians is to grasp it. He's talking about the, what do I do? Jesus is coming pretty soon. What do I do now? And Paul's going to talk to them as people who have been changed. Well, once you were, but now you are, so here's what I'm going to tell you. Okay? So, any thoughts or questions about all of that little spiel? Rich? No? Okay. All right. 717, back in 1 Corinthians. Yes? I kind of have an off the wall question. Time of the flesh, time of the spirit. Yes. After resurrection, do we come back as a spirit or do we come back as fully flesh? This word flesh means sinful. This is throughout. The word, Greek word is sark. So a common way to talk about the time of sin is the time of the flesh. And Paul does it a lot. So that's what that's about. It's not trying to get into resurrection. Resurrection is utterly bodily. Resurrection means one thing, bodily. Um, my parents have passed away. 
there with Christ, but they ha are not yet re-embodied. That, that's coming. That'll come when Jesus returns and there is the great resurrection of the dead. Okay? But resurrection is, there is no meaning of resurrection other than bodily material. Okay? Sure. Okay, so look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Anybody else anything? This is a time to talk about stuff. Nope. They, well, no, no. What do you mean? Okay, so, I mean, I, I'm no expert on, on how, because you have uh, races in Asia, Africa, Europe, the Semitic, the rest, and you have a lot of growth of all of that. I guess it would take somebody with knowledge better than mine to, to talk about how that how, how certain racial characteristics came to be in certain places, okay? The difference between Africa and Northern Europe, for example. Um, but the key thing is that, you know, here, here's another piece. You know, the world I grew up in, our world again today, is so consumed with race. That is not a question on the minds of people in the Roman Empire. They really didn't care about it. There were other divisions. That's why it doesn't show up here in this list. They in in, in Galatians. It wasn't. They, they were not. They were not race conscious. Um, the streets of Rome might be filled with people from the east who were darker. People from Africa. People who from the north who were um, as white as snow. Just not race conscious. It just wasn't one of the big divisions. Um, that existed in the Roman Empire. There it was more social status. Men and women, um, Jew and Gentile because of how weird the Jews were. And the fact that they would not, see they wouldn't conform to the world around them. Everybody else lived in a world filled with pagan gods and goddesses. They would go to the temple and they would pay their temple tax to whatever to Caesar and they would go and to festivals and parties at you know the temple of Zeus or the temple of Aphrodite or whatever they would drink and they would have a good dinner and all that stuff the Jews stayed away from that if a Jew was participating in that it meant that that person was choosing the Greek world rather than God's world and so the Jews tended to live apart in Jewish quarters in these in these these cities. Not all of them, I grant you that, but, but that's, that's the thrust of it, anyway. Okay, so, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. He's not talking really about circumcision. He's saying what? Well, however you were, when, when you came to the body of Christ, just stay there. Why? 
because Jesus is, is, is returning. Um, and Richard Hayes says it's, it would, doing otherwise would be like, like rearranging the chairs, deck chairs on the Titanic, which is a phrase I've heard before in my life. That, except of course Jesus is coming, isn't like the Titanic, it's a good thing, right? So, um, the things that you might have once been concerned about, just don't be concerned about them now. Everything has changed. Jesus is returning. Here's what that means for us. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. You know, so climbing the social ladder, all that kind of stuff. No, don't. We're going to come together. We're going to live together. We're going to keep God's commands. We're going to try to be a good witness to others. Um, and we are going to, and soon Jesus will return, and the whole world will see that the kingdom of God indeed has arrived. What's interesting is you go to a, to a later letter, like, 2 Thessalonians, I think 2 Thessalonians is from a bit later. It appears to be things are changing a little bit for Paul. Because what's happening there is that he's writing to them and he's saying to them, well, look, you people are just kind of laying around all day. You're laying in your hammock. You're in your easy chair. You're just hanging out because Jesus is about to come. And he's saying, Nope, get up. There's stuff to do. Everybody works. No idleness. He isn't denying that Jesus is coming, but as time goes on, what do the Christians have to do? They have to begin to accommodate the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet. What are we doing 2,000 years later? Reading a letter from 2,000 years ago, trying to figure out what does it say to us? What does it say to us today in 2022 when we are awfully close to reaching the 2000s, 2000s anniversary of Jesus' death and resurrection and the arrival of the Spirit of Pentecost? What does it mean for us today? I don't go to sleep at night with the expectation that Jesus is coming back tomorrow or the next day or the next year. I try to live my life that way but I would be pleasantly surprised, I just have to say, right? I would be pleasantly surprised. So I try to live my life in the expectation that Jesus is about to return. In some ways, other ways, no, because I, I buy life insurance and all that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> so, but it's 2,000 years. You can see it in Peter, okay? So, so Peter addresses this because you can, you can understand how the Christians would be saying, okay, he's, he better hurry up, you know? And so Peter says, ah, you know? Famously, he says to, to, to the Christians, a thousand years for us is like a day for the Lord. This is in God's time. It's not in our time. This is in God's time. As if... <sighs> live your lives. I, maybe it's a little, I haven't ever, I think, mentally made this connection. Maybe it's a little bit like when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem 
And tens of thousands of Jews went into exile. And they went, they, they were marched a thousand miles from home to Babylon. And God, through Jeremiah, sends them a letter. And what does God tell them in this letter? Well, you need to build your homes. You need to have your children. You need to plant your fields. You need to work for the good of the community that you're a part of. I'm going to bring you back. I've got plans for you. But it ain't going to be tomorrow. <laughs> right? So, yeah, because they go through a generation or two before they're allowed by Cyrus to begin returning to Israel. So, I think that's a little bit like this. Now, I have, you know, my, my number one, you know, scholars N.T. Wright, and he disagrees with Richard Hayes on this. He doesn't see in this Paul taught his writing being shaped by the expectation that Jesus is going to return shortly. He does it in the context, well, he says this and this because there, there's a famine at the time and he's just telling people, you know, this is no time to be, you know, making big changes in your life. But I think he's wrong. I, I, I just think he's wrong. I, I, I can just understand, I think I can understand so clearly how people would be in a situation like this, that they would expect Jesus to return soon because they, it was, this whole thing was formed out of the Jewish consciousness that when the Messiah came, all the dead would be raised. And yes, maybe now it's been 20 years, but it's still all good, it has to be soon. And that's why for 2,000 years, you will find Christians who will say, well, it's gonna happen in my lifetime, even setting dates to it, as in William Miller. They, they were all disappointed, you know? I'm not gonna set date to it, I don't know. Jesus said, it's going to come back like a thief in the night. What I do know is this. It's been 2,000 years, and that has to shape how we, what we, we get from this. So look at 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. To go to Galatians. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither slave nor free. Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. They, it doesn't work for them now like it works for everybody else. Once we were, but now we are. Even for the slaves. And, you know, s slavery in the ancient world was, it was everywhere. Around the globe, not just in the West or in the Middle East or something, in, in China, in India. In the Americas, Aztecs, Mayans, they all practiced slavery. It was the way, was fundamental to the economies of the ancient world, which didn't have much technology and needed people power to do most anything of scale. And so how would they get people power? They'd use people they could get, one way or another, often in war or in other ways. So he says to them, in verse 22, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. 
See, Christ's slave. Paul would call himself Christ's slave. Sometimes in your translations it's softened to be, I'm a servant of Christ. But in Greek it's the, I'm a slave of Christ. And if, just, if, you, if you are a household slave working, a senior household slave working in the household of Caesar, you're going to be a high status person. Okay, just because you're attached to Caesar. What Paul is not saying, oh, who are you attached to now? Christ. Who is Paul attached to? Christ. All the notions of status and everything are all thrown up to the air and upset because we are all one in Christ Jesus. You, here we are again, 23, you were bought at a price. That's been on Paul's mind, right? Because remember, and just not long before, at the end of chapter 6, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. He's going along, he's probably dictating this to somebody, more than likely, um, as opposed to writing in his own hand. And so that phrase is, is in his mind. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings, by which he means don't go back to the old way. Even if, you're, even if you actually are a slave of the household owner, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And so, what do we do with this? How would, how would these few paragraphs mean something to us in 2022? Well, I guess I think that, it says to me anyway, that we have to work all the time to get over our status consciousness. And it's not easy because we live in a world today which is, I wouldn't know if I can say increasingly because that's something that, you know, old farts are likely to say, you know, don't want anything to ever change, right? But I guess I kind of do think that because of the celebrity, the nature of the celebrity culture, and as it filters out into the world, and there are now even celebrity preachers, with all of the, there are a lot of downsides to that, being lived out at Mars Hill, which Arthur has talked about a great deal, that we have to fight the inclination towards status and grasp that in the body of Christ, we are all one and those outside status distinctions that matter on the outside they might be driven by what they might be driven by race they might be driven by um, where you're from they might be driven by money they might be driven by what you have they might be driven by education whatever they are wherever they are we have to push them away because we are all one in Christ Jesus and those distinctions have to melt away in the body of Christ. I'm not, it, Paul is not speaking to the outside world. He's not foolish. He knows it's enough of, of a battle inside the body of Christ, but less trying to go to the outside world, but the outside world is not filled with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit dwells only in believers, not non-believers. There's a big 
there's a big line between unbelievers and believers. And what Paul is trying to do is to get the believers to recognize that and the implications of it. And we need to do the same. So, thoughts, questions, any perspectives there on this? Rich. That's a wise point. What? You're on target. So I'm just repeat for everybody what, what, what you were saying. What Richard's saying, you know what I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit. What Paul is demanding of them is that they live lives counter to human nature. Right? We human nature and that human nature. I'm going to speak of as a fallen human nature, right? That humans, we have this heart of darkness. That's the, that's the name of the, the novel, right? The heart of darkness. And um, we, we have this darkness in, in our hearts. And we are asked, demanded, challenged by Jesus, by Paul, um, um, should be challenging ourselves to live lives counter to where that human nature is shoving us all the time. We, we should never fall back on the old, oh well, I'm just being human. We are to live different lives. Why? Is it just an arbitrary, oh gee, I just want you to be a little better person? Is it humanist in that way? Uh, just, you know, yeah, it's better to be kind than, no, it's because you have been reborn and you need to live out that rebirth. It's almost like like biological. Not simply educational or something. It, it's, you have been reborn. Paul, Arthur did a great job on this on Sunday. You've been reborn. You are a new person. Once you were, but now you are. You have been crucified with Christ, but you have been resurrected with Christ. You are a new person. You have stepped into a new life. And that life runs counter to human nature in many ways because you're not the old person anymore. You're the new person. It's like this chart, right? Let's see, let me find another chart. Let me find, I like the color. Let me find, okay? It's like, okay, this is old you. This is, this top line here is the new you. Paul is really pushing people to live in that top line every day because that's who you are. He doesn't, he doesn't hedge it. He doesn't, um, he doesn't say, well, you know, these are, this is a little better way to live. Everybody knows what a better way to live is. Just not, not enough people do it. And we do it 
not because it's just a better way to live, but because it comes from the new people that we are. That's a big mind shift. That's, that's part of what Paul means when he says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can understand what the will of God is, what is good and, and, and pleasing to God. It's because we're new people. And if you were to say to Paul, but Paul, I don't feel like I'm a new person. He would say, but, but you are. But you are. You are. Have you put your faith in Christ? Yes, I have. As best I can. Yeah, I'm real. <sighs> Paul would say, then you are. Once you were, but now you are. So yes, go forth, new person. Right? So that, you know, this is one of the fra great phrases from N.T. Wright. This, say he has a gift for words. Paul is founding and growing colonies of a new human race. Those are not empty words. You and I are part of a new human race. That is Paul's worldview given to him by God. That's what puts meaning to Pentecost. It's what puts meaning, it's the implications of Jesus' resurrection. So, um, and, and here it is shaping this paragraph, a couple of paragraphs, because Paul is simply saying, well, <laughs> this little orange box, he, you know, it's as if to say this little, little orange box is only going to be, you know, not, not, not that very wide. And, but even without that, even in our world, we need to be focused on different things. Our, okay, so where do we get our status from? Should we get our status in our own mind's eye from our education? I got a lot of education, let me tell you. No. It is because we are Christ's. It is in Christ that we have our status. And we should need nothing, we should need nothing more. And it's a challenge. It runs counter to human nature, but we're new humans. Yeah, I think you find the same thing, an element of the same thing in all religions, but it's an incomplete and untrue picture, a weak version of Christianity. I don't know that you see what in all religions. Yeah, okay, well, I'm going to trip over my own feet here. There might be a, see, but the call is not simply to live counter to human nature. The first part of it is the call to understand that you are a new person. You have been reborn in as real a sense as Jesus was resurrected. In as real a sense as you were born out of your mother's womb some years ago. Right? That's the thing. That just a few years back. So, <laughs> right? So that's the thing. So it is because we are new persons that Paul is urging us to live lives counter to human nature. It is that intermediate piece of it that I think other religions don't get. They're calls to live lives. Because like I say to people, okay, pick up Confucius, 
read Confucius, live your life according to Confucius, if you can actually do it, you'll probably live a better life. You'll be what I would call a better person. You're going to find out that you can't, really, because, you know, we have this darkness in our hearts, but Confucius understood a lot about, so did Aristotle, go around the globe, the bookstore, is Barnes & Noble still open over there? The bookstore over there, Barnes & Noble, they got lots of books with lots of wisdom in them. The piece that's missing that we have to understand if we're going to understand, if we're going to read Paul well, is our rebirth. That's the piece. We have been reborn by water and the Spirit. We are new humans. And from that, we talk about the implications of it. Well, the implications of right here, the implications are because they have the expectation that Jesus is about to return, they're not going to move the deck chairs around on the Titanic. The implications of that is, in chapter 8, there's no place in our lives for idolatry. Okay? So, anyway, anyway, that, that, that's what your question triggered in my thought. Yes? What? This is revolutionary. That's what people don't get about Paul, so right? Well, okay, so the rich man story is also about God's grace, okay? It's by God's grace the rich can get into heaven, but do they, is wealth a stumbling block? A big stumbling block, yes. And if we go to these house churches, what are we going to find? We're going to find... Just think about how people are. We're going to find that the wealthier, higher status people don't want to hang out much with the lower status slaves who would probably be more readily coming to these house churches, okay? And more excited to hear words about their change in status. And that's why, so what's, what's an outcome of that that we're going to run into in this letter? Well, one outcome of that is that when they come together to take the Lord's Supper, which is a real meal, the rich people don't want to eat with the slaves and the poor people. The rich people want to sit in one room and have the usual ni really nice lunch they're used to, you know, from I don't know where, three forks or something that they're all bringing to have for their Lord's Supper, and everybody else who's making do on a, uh, on a McDonald's hamburger there have to be in another room and Paul's head is spinning on his shoulders saying no 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 those are abuses of the Lord's Supper don't you get it it's the same thing that is happening in households with husbands there it's the husband's world who's being turned upside down by Christianity not the wives it's the husband's world who is being turned upside down. And it is revolutionary. Now, did Paul 
come around trying to lead slave revolts. No, that's not his place. That's not his role. That's not what he is there to do. But is it true that the biblical teachings and the growth of Christianity underlied the end of slavery in many cultures? Yes. William Wilberforce in England, that was a Christian movement. The British Empire was very dependent upon the trade generated by slaves and so forth, and the slaves working on the British plantations. And Wilberforce, a Christian, John Newton, who became a Christian, he was a ship captain, he was a writer of Amazing Grace. It was a Christian movement. Why was it a Christian movement? Because in Christ we are all one. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, and that led Christians to grasp. But even as an institution, slavery just needed to end. It led people to be willing to fight a war here in this country, which hundreds of thousands of people died to bring it to an end because it was simply wrong. How did they know it was wrong? It had been around forever in various forms in various places. How did they know? Because they had taken in the biblical teachings about, about people. People in general and people who are part of the body of Christ. So not restricted to just the body of Christ, but just, just, just the truth that we're all created in God's image. So, okay. So, let's go on a little bit. So now he's going to have some advice for the people who are not married yet. Because if Jesus is about to come, what do you do? Well, now about virgins. That's just unmarried. Okay. I have no command from the Lord. Okay, interesting. But I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. As in, well, this is just me, but I'm doing the best I can. Okay, because of the present crisis, you see, that phrase is what drives N.T. Wright to say, well, some of this has to be around this famine that's going on, and maybe people shouldn't be rushing into making life decisions right now because things are hard. Maybe not. Maybe there's truth to both things. Maybe Hayes and Wright are both right at the same time. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. If you're engaged, stay engaged. If you're not, don't go looking. <laughs> I don't know, maybe this was a time of high inflation or something. I don't know. <laughs> Supply chain issues. I don't know. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. In other words, you go ahead and do this. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> I'm just giving you my advice. That's basically how he begins the paragraph. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Well, <laughs> huh, that's interesting. <laughs> okay. Is that driven just by whatever crisis is happening, or is that just his observation? 
because Paul wasn't married. Paul, I think, saw value in celibacy, in being unmarried, perhaps in part because he thinks Jesus is about to return and there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but yeah, whenever I come to that verse, I say, well, Paul, you never met my Patty. Aww. But maybe he met Whoa, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Those, those, how about this? Those who marry the wrong person <laughs> will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Well, what time is short? Well, we're back to what? We just have to be. The time is short until Jesus comes back. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if, it, as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. He's just saying, your life is going to be different now because the things that, that used to consume you shouldn't be consuming you. Jesus is just, Jesus, we're, we're about to the end of this orange space here, maybe is a way to put it. Now, and that's what makes it hard to translate it into 2022 and we are 2,000 years later. At least it is for me, and I think probably for a lot of other people. Um, Because I really don't think there's much guidance for my life in words that says those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. The best that I, if, like, if I were asked to preach this, my sermon would end up being about don't be too attached to the same things of this world. Okay? Now that is, in, in its purest form, that is very Buddhist, right? Because Buddhism is all about shedding all attachments. Achieving nirvana is when you have shed all attachments, even the attachment to self. But of course, what are the two great commandments? to love God and to love others. So am I, is, is my, you know, am I to shed my attachment to Patty? Well, of course not. But can I be so, how about this? Can I be so consumed with the things of this world that I fail to live my life in the light of Christ, that I fail to live it in the light that yes, Jesus might be coming tomorrow, or a week from now, or a month from now, or a year from now. That truth is what needs to shape my life, not the things of this world that, um, that the secular world wants to put in front of me all the time. Verse 32. 
I would like you to be free from concern. From concern, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how we can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how we can please his wife. That is absolutely true. <laughs> and his interests are divided. Well, you can see where that view, that's Paul's experience. And remember he said he was, he's got no commands from the Lord about this. This is Paul's own view of these things. Is that he can devote himself fully to his vocation, to his calling. And not be, quote, distracted by, you know, a wife and children and the rest. I can say in my case, I have a very strong calling. I've had a very strong calling for more than 20 years. I would not be living out that calling. I wouldn't even know I had a calling if it were not for Patty. So, so... And we know that Peter was married. Paul acknowledges that Peter was married. He never says Peter shouldn't be married. Um, and I think it's, I personally think it's wrong to use a passage like this to try to support the idea that, that priests shouldn't marry, for example, in the Catholic Church. I, I, don't, I don't think that's necessary or, or healthy, really, because we were built a certain way, which is how chapter 7 begins. But now you will see the mutuality again in verse 34, second part of it. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord to both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Now, the wives in these house churches are going to nod, yes, yes, I know, that's my life, is pleasing my husband. The husbands are not going to be nodding up and down, okay, my life is pleasing my wife. But do you see the mutuality in the way Paul writes this? Because that's what he wants them to grasp. They are mutually submissive, one to the other. Mutually putting the interests of the other ahead of their own. The husband trying to please the wife, the wife trying to please the husband. You know, I've counseled, I don't do much marriage counseling, but you know, I, I, I get asked once in a while stuff about that. And you know, I, I just tell them, you know, you, if, here's where you need to begin. Try to put your, your, your spouse's interests ahead of your own. If you married the right person, that's gonna be magic. Because they'll put your interests, their, your interests ahead of theirs. And in that you find the doors open. If you've married a selfish person, will only take advantage of you if you put their interests ahead of your own. You've married the wrong person. And he's saying this in verse, look at verse 35. He says, I'm saying all this for your own good, not to restrict you, but to you, you may live in a right way in undivided of devotion for the Lord. Right? Well, I would like to sit down with Paul and say, you need to meet my wife and you need to understand that, that <laughs> celibacy is, is not the way forward for most people. 
It is not how they become the person who can be most effectively devoted to, to Jesus. Maybe for you, Paul, but, but, but not for most of us. Okay, verse 30, 30, 36. Now, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, and he feels that he ought to marry, then go ahead. He should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. You know, so when you read through these paragraphs, surely you get that Paul is sitting there, probably speaking to a secretary, and out of it comes this letter. Right? This is just a... He's got problems, they're coming at him, he's going to get another one presented to him here in a couple paragraphs later, and he is just writing things, and he's differentiating between what he gets from the Lord and what is just his own, and just, there you go. It is scripture, but it isn't all equally helpful. So, okay. The man, verse 37, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, which I mean, think means his sexual drive, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, the unmarried woman, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not because that's what I do. You know, it's like, couldn't you just put the period a little bit sooner at the end? They didn't have periods. But couldn't you put the period a little bit sooner at the end of that paragraph? Paul, you would, you would have many, many people, many, many people, fewer people mad at you if you did. Which, you know, it's not his goal. He's just trying to, you know, we, we could talk a long time about marriage in that world and the over-sexualization of that world and how Paul is trying to lead them to a new place and the expectation that Jesus is soon to return. But he basically ends up saying, if you want to marry, marry. If you don't, don't. But the emphasis is on being devoted to the Lord because everything in Paul is really, when you boil it down about two things, do what builds up the church, do what is a good witness to others. That's the service we're called to. Build up the church, love others, feed them, clothe them, be a good witness to, to others who are um, not part of the body of Christ. And then in verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In other words, his strong advice is that you marry Christian to Christian. If you, you know, remember what he said earlier? You know, if you, if you, he says to the house churches, okay, if you come to Christ and your husband doesn't, well, Stay married to him because you might save him. You don't, you don't know how he might come to know Christ. Okay? But here the woman has died and Paul's advice, his teaching is, if your husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. 
when Patty and I were talking about getting married, I discovered that she had three rules. Do you want to know what they were? <laughs> See if I get this right. Only three. Only three. Yes, yes, but you had the rules already. Yeah, our, our, our story is kind of different than most, but yes, she's still. So one was I needed to be a good dad because Robbie was just a little kid, and I told her, "Yep, yep, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm good at being a dad. I've always enjoyed being a dad." And so, yeah, I'm totally down with that. And then I shouldn't smoke. That was an, that was another one. I should I shouldn't be a smoker. And I said, well, I'm not a smoker. So that was, that was easy. Then she said, well, you need to be a Christian. And I said, well, I am. And I said, well, you know, you and I might be in different rooms, but we're in the same house. And, I said, what the heck? and then she said, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> well, she was this big go to Prestonwood all this time, and I was this little Episcopalian altar boy, you know, growing up. <laughs> yeah, so I, my advice my kids haven't really always come asking me for this advice. I wish I, I, I wish I had come to understand more of this much earlier in my life when I was raising my kids. But if I had a, a, a child who came to me asking for marriage advice, I would say yes. If you want to marry a believer, you want marriage is its ultimate in the marriage of disciples. In the marriage of disciples. It does matter. It does matter. And then you, you can agree on raising your children as disciples, raising them in the faith. And I think that's all Paul is getting at here. So, so, okay. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. Single. I'm telling you, that's where he's coming from in this. He is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. We all have to remember though. He said these are his words. You know, he does he does start this long section out by saying, you know, I don't really have something from the Lord but I'm trustworthy and you should you should listen to me and so we should listen to Paul and <laughs> well, did you just give me a raspberry <laughs> you know you know who you're channeling right now Barbara staff remember Barbara yeah yeah she 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 just didn't like Paul very much so she she didn't and, and you know it's it's Paul was a very, what was Paul? Paul was a, Paul was fiercely um, a plus, 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 plus in his makeup. Very intellectual, very driven, very sure in his calling and in what God had given him to teach and to proclaim. And it's no wonder that when he has an opinion about something, even if he will acknowledge that this is basically my opinion, it's not coming from the Lord, that he will hold that opinion very strongly. It's just, it's just how he is. There's, there's no mealy-mouthed moment 
in Paul's writings. It's just, it's just not who he is. So when we come together next week, I have the joy of no longer talking about marriage, <laughs> sexuality, any of that stuff. Instead, we're going to turn to that topic that's on everybody's mind, meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Okay? And I have photographs. Did you know that in, Palm, in Pompeii, there is a fast food restaurant? They had a word for them. A fast food restaurant that has been uncovered in Pompeii. Oh, yeah. And so I will bring you the photos of the fast food restaurant in Pompeii next week. We'll talk about, we'll talk about their dining habits, and we'll talk about meat that's sacrificed to idols, and we will talk about idolatry and living. And there are real connections between chapter 8 and our lives today, even if they're not obvious. Okay? So, I told you it's going to be quite a journey through 1 Corinthians. Um, and it, because he covers, they ask him, a, there are just so many issues and questions presented to Paul. That, that, that's what's happening. And he, he does take them all on in different ways. So, anything else before I wrap us up in prayer? How about you, Patty? Do you have anything for us? Okay, shall I close this in prayer then? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here, help us to hear Paul well, which means help us to hear Paul calling us, even in 22, 2022, to understand that we are new people, and that the ways of the world are not our ways, and the distinctions that the world makes are not our distinctions. We are members of this new human race, reborn um, by the Spirit, reborn um, so that we can proclaim the truth of Christ and live the truth of Christ before the whole world. Um, help us to be people who truly, genuinely, every day, wake up determined to be an ever truer disciple of Jesus, loving you and loving others in real concrete ways, just a little better. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.